pray. Amen. Amen and amen. <clears throat> well, welcome to another episode of Beyond Four Walls. As usual, I am your host, Abel, and uh, with me is Anthony. How you doing, Anthony? What's up, guys? Doing good, doing good. That's awesome. Um, and today we have our first return guest. I'm super excited. Um, it is Emmanuel, or as I call him, Ricky. Um, how you doing? I'm well, though. I'm a little confused why you said my name in English like that. Oh, Emmanuel. There we go. There you go. <laughs> um, so uh, we have our, our first return guest. As um, if it's your first time listening, with uh, Ricky being on, um, as we uh, lovingly call him, uh, he is a director or um, president of World Outspoken, which is a, a nonprofit organization directed on. Um, implementing and uh, diversifying um, ministries, churches, and others that are looking for the same need. Um, in addition to that, um, I'll brag a little bit. My brother uh, is finishing, um, Ricky's finishing his PhD, um, and uh, that is super exciting and a milestone for the family. But it, and um, anniversary is coming up, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering right. For That's his right. Wedding. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. a month in three days. From, from anniversary. So, hey, question. Um, if I'm a return guest, do I get, is this like SNL? Do I get like a jacket after a certain amount of visits? After, after the 10th return. Work? After after the 10th return. 10th. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, we're, we play the long game here. I see. Um, okay. But anything that I missed, uh, Ricky, uh, you want to go ahead and add? Uh, uh, no, I am. Um, I'm a active participant in a church here in Chicago called The Brook. Uh, we'll do a Pentecostal style. Mando saludos de mi pastor Eric Rivera, la pastora Erica Rivera, um, and then my wife Kelly, who is taking care of Toby so that he makes marginal marginal uh, moments pop up here in the on the screen because it's it's yeah. hard to avoid it, but he might he might pop up here and there. No, yeah. Then um, also you have a new dog. I don't think Benito would uh, appreciate you not shouting him out as well. You know what? That's true. Benito's sick today, though, so he's definitely not showing up. Okay, okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, man. I'm excited to to have you on. There's a lot of couple of things we wanted to uh, talk about um, when it comes to that. Um, but I um, know you just came back from traveling for Florida, visiting some family, and seeing some family getting together. How was that? I wasn't able to go, so. Yeah, it was in trouble. It was in trouble here. He's he's giving this shout out so he can try to earn some points that he lost because we had we had the the first ever attempt at a family reunion on the Padilla side of our family. So my dad's side of the family. Uh, it was awesome. I mean, it was really cool to see, um, you know, as many folks as we had seen in that in that little span. I think Abel's wedding maybe is a close second in terms of the amount of padillas who were represented or, or present at the at, in one place. But it was really cool. We had representation from Ohio, from Puerto Rico, from Michigan, obviously us from Chicago. Um, it was a real delight to, to see that many folks uh, in our family. Uh, if you're part of the Puerto Rican diaspora, you know that the families are pretty fragmented, scattered all around the U.S., and it's hard to gather them. Even when they're in one city, it's hard to gather them. And so, uh, and so it was a real... A real treat to see everyone together, even if it was just briefly, just for a weekend. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and that's a kind of uh, interesting you mentioned about kind of location wise. It's one of the uh, points we wanted to bring up with you is um, I know, especially a couple of years ago before, um, before getting married and dealing with uh, your PhD and a lot of other things, 
you were really focused on the city planning and even considered at one point uh, being a tour guide for Chicago. Yeah. Um, so I applied. Did you know that I applied for a job as a tour guide? Yeah, you would have done good. You talk a lot, so it would have been, <laughs> <been> great. <laughs> um, but uh, that's kind of one of the things that I now moving to Charlotte, being part of it, experiencing kind of the city, uh, um, and experiencing different parts of the city, and Charlotte being a unique spot where you could quickly go into the mountains and be part of the mountains as well and countryside. Mm-hmm. How do you view um, through your time, kind of studying city planning and and being part of that and looking it through the lens of the Lord, how do you view city, countryside, and how would you say the perfect design of living spaces is? It suburban? Is it countryside? Is it the city? What would be the perfect uh, creation that God would want us to be in? Yeah, it's a great question. So I should back up and just say that uh, just so that the audience has a little bit more uh, sense of my, my background interests, it's not just that I nerd out over cities and love I've been in Chicago for 13 years. It's actually the place that I've lived in the most. Uh, I lived in Detroit until I was about 11. Obviously, we lived in Point Siena, which is an exurb, until I was about uh, 19, almost 20, and then now Chicago. So, so I've been here for for the longest chunk of my life, and that's you know the interest in the cities is not just being a tour guide and loving downtown and those kind of things, but it was also an interest in what makes what are the assumptions that are built into the places that shape me. And so it was a recognition that that place matters, that place plays a role in who I am. Uh, Having moved the times that I moved, having moved to Chicago especially uh, by myself and having realized that Chicago was playing a role in making me someone as I was kind of stepping out into adult life on my own, I took a real interest in it in graduate study. And so my MA thesis, my master's thesis, was actually about the city plan of Chicago. So I asked the question, who, who helped build this? What were the assumptions they made? And, and why is it that the city works the way that it does? And I'll just tell a quick story in terms of what, what really inspired those questions for me. Uh, when I was starting my graduate program in 2015, so this is right when I'm starting my, my degree at Trinity, there was a shooting in Chicago uh, on the south side of the city in a neighborhood called Auburn Gresham, a, a nine-year-old boy named Taishan Lee was shot and killed because his father, uh, so Taishan's dad, was um, misrecognized. So a group of gang members thought that he was someone that he wasn't. And because they thought he was this other person, they lured his son into an alley by taking his basketball and then shot and killed Taishan Lee. It was a it was a really really tragic story. It really rocked our city, and I was reading a news the news article from a local news outlet here in Chicago the next day, and the reporter asked the question, "Shouldn't it be our moral responsibility as citizens of Chicago to rebuild the parts of the city that have been shaped to be these centers of violence. That's not, I'm paraphrasing parts of the question, but he put it on Chicagoans to say, do we need to rebuild something about the city? And I thought the question was really interesting because he didn't say, do we need more nonprofits? Do we need to deal with you know, um, policies around gun laws? Do we need to you know, ask something about politicians? The, the thing that stuck in my brain that I just couldn't get over was the fact that he said, do we need to rebuild parts of this city? 
it was the the built environment is the technical term it was something about the way the city was arranged that this reporter was saying there's something wrong with this arrangement that enables certain cycles to repeat themselves over and over and over again. And so this is right when I'm starting my PhD and it's a theological question, right? Do we have a moral responsibility? If so, what it what what is undergirding those morals, right? What is the 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 theological impetus? Is there some divine rule that needs to be obeyed? These are the questions that were that were coming up for me right as I was starting graduate study. And so I took an interest in finished my graduate study pursuing those questions. Now, back to the initial question that you asked, Abel, is there an ideal environment for, for people, right? Um, that's a trickier question to answer, but I will say one of the most interesting things about the Bible story, the biblical arc, if we take the Bible as one story that's told from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it's very interesting that the Bible does go from garden to city, and that within the city in new jerusalem there is reflections of the garden past right so there's uh, the tree of life once more and those kinds of things right and so it's interesting that the bible moves from garden to city and that hebrews 13 14 tells us that those faith individuals of the hebrew bible of the old testament were seeking a city that would last and so it's interesting that the the urban environment is the one that that we get a picture of a glimpse of as the final destination for those who believe and put their faith in jesus christ and so that's not to say that those who are comfortable living on the countryside are doomed to live in a city and never see the countryside again right i do think that that um, the biblical picture given that it has echoes of the garden within it has a very different conception of city than perhaps some of the things that we've seen in most cities especially here in the u.s but it's just interesting, right, that the Bible arc goes from garden to city. Now, um, transition uh, to you, Anthony. Um, as we see New Jerusalem be implemented, um, and even cities today, obviously they're being grown and ruined by decisions of man. Um, and as we see even in the Bible, New Jerusalem being created, there was a lot of corruption being set upon that. Um, being part of uh, experience in New York yourself, Anthony, what do you think are the driving factors of God uniting people within a city? Um, and then what do you think are the human errors that we've done in human city creation? It's tough because, <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's an aspect of being together that, you know, leans one to, to, promote cities and want to be in a city because you you get that night t that close-knit community where you know you got neighbors upstairs downstairs and and you know you can walk everywhere corner store you can walk two or three minutes um but you know i'm a little biased i love country i love farming animals so you know i'm if it was up to me i always lean to the country but uh there is a benefit to to city life and the camaraderie that comes with it and like ricky says you know it's interesting that it goes from a garden to a city and we're compared although you know the new jerusalem is the church is us it's a community so that's that's where it's drawing from is the community aspect from it not so much the physical 
aspects that we see building skyscrapers. But um, I say we need both because, you know, everything is a balance. You can't, if, if everything goes to city life, then, you know, we need the, the countryside to produce the things that the city people need to survive with, you need both to go hand in hand and to, and to coexist, to, to work together. Now, uh, two things uh, to kind of ask upon, upon that same concept. One of the things as I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about Lot and Abraham and how because they grew so big, they needed to separate. And I think about that same concept when it comes to city, about space and the amount of space needed to be able to live a life that is needed to be able to do that. And as we get more urbanized and we get more city, obviously space becomes more smaller excuse me because you're packing more things more more people in a in a space now um just i'm gonna ask i guess both of you uh ricky you experienced apartment life for a long period of time anthony you're actually a homeowner now what do you think is that balance of that space needed to experience god because it gives like for example being a homeowner having a backyard allows you to garden allows you to have experienced animals allows you to maintain the the outdoors which illuminates a lot of the, who the Lord is. Um, and then, like you said, being in an apartment complex, I, I lived in a four, uh, 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 a four duplex, uh, I forgot what, uh, quadruplex. Um, and even with that, that gives you another experience on the opposite spectrum that you really get opportunity if you have great neighbors to really connect with neighbors, that if, if you have big land, sometimes you really don't get that. So, um, Anthony, I'll go with you first. How, what do you, how do you view that balance of, is there a certain amount of space needed for the Lord to work, or is that something that is just human nature that we need? No, I mean, God's got to do what He has to do, no matter what, what way He, you know. We can't put Him in a box. Um, what I would say is that you know it's not a coincidence that big cities are always coastal. Um, they're in the edges of the of the of the country or the state for the most part, because unless there's, you know, a river or something that goes in because they back when, when the country was created, they needed access to, to trade routes to, to bring supplies and, and food and whatnot from other places. So that's why mo most big cities, if not all are connected to some, some sort of water that connects to the outside world. So that, that goes into, again, the camaraderie and the, leaning on others for support and help because you know we everybody doesn't have all the resources that we need all the intelligence you know we're not the be all end all we have to rely on others and just like you know the bible says we're a body there's ears eyes so the, the body relies on all parts to work together in unison to 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 fulfill the purpose of god so yeah Ricky, what do you what do you think about that concept of of the space needed uh the ideal space needed for the Lord and for, for us in particular? Yeah, it's an excellent question. The The question of density is always an interesting one. It, it's worth pointing out that, uh, number one, density has, has proven to have many benefits, uh, in particular for, for the least of these. And so uh, think of it this way. Uh, there's a reason that homeless people flock to cities over flocking to rural spaces or flocking to the countryside or even the suburbs it's because in a space of density there's a lot more possibility of care right and so you have a lot more functions from the city itself 
to care for uh, homeless people, for instance, to care for migrants, refugees, um, political refugees, people that are flocking because of war. Take, for instance, uh, those U uh, Ukrainians who left Russia or left the battles in Ukraine, right? Flooding into cities in Poland and Italy, et cetera, et cetera. So diversity has uh, benefits that that are particularly important for those that are uh, in spaces of need. The density is actually quite helpful. But I want to kind of maybe back up and just say there are three benefits to the density of a city, the kind of bigness of it all, right? Um, and then I should also say that one of the base assumptions that I come to is that uh, cities are the most complex thing that humanity has created, right? You have We have cell phones, we have cars, we have all kinds of things, but more complicated than all of those things is the creation of a city because it's a kind of complex incubator for those other things, right? So the, we can have iPhones and Macs and PCs and all that stuff because of the networks and fabrics, the, the things that stitch together, that come together in a city. So I'll just say cities do three things. Number one, they create human advancement. This is pulling from my research here, right? Uh, human advancement, and I've already mentioned here, right? The least of these have greater possibility of prospering or at least feeling a sense of flourishing in the city than they do anywhere else. Uh, two, cities are places for technological advancement. You see the greatest technological advancements happening in cities in part because of the complexities, that city, complexities of relationships that cities enable. Uh, and then three, those complexities of relationships are themselves a blessing of the city. So human cooperation across a variety of roles, right? So technicians, engineers, people who are fixing and taking care of our garbage, sewage, right? All those systems enable certain kinds of cultural production. And so cities become a kind of incubator for human culture making. And I think that's the benefit of it. Now, is the density also something that takes away well, this is where you guys have already talked about New Jerusalem and some of the uh, some of the ways that Jerusalem itself in Scripture becomes problematic. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that the Bible gives us two uh, major images, two key metaphors for understanding the city. If we want to use that as a the the city, the big big capital C city, right? We get Babylon, and we get Jerusalem, right? Babylon is this parasitic monster that leeches off the lands and people in forms of exploitation that is destructive to everything around it in a way that is devastating such that people look to flee Babylon, escape Babylon, to hide from Babylon, right? To find space away from Babylon, right? Many of our cities in the U.S. are built in these sort of Babylonian, leechy, parasitic ways, as we will look to escape it for more space and land, etc., etc. But New Jerusalem is supposed to be the kind of city that is the, the light to other nations, is what the Old Testament calls it. Zion is this word that's repeated in the Psalms as a kind of light, light motif to say, this is supposed to shine in a way that blesses and creates further flourishing for the veins of networks all the way out, out into the countryside that are attached to it. I think Anthony was very right when he said, we need both. We need a healthy rural infrastructure and we need a healthy working city. And New Jerusalem is that final image, the final picture of that. And it's always interesting that even in 
Israel's uh, best attempts, they always ever created a Jerusalem that looked more Babylonian than it looked like Jerusalem, right? So there, there was always this uh, attempt to failure, exile, and then again, right? There's this kind of cycle yeah. that happens in the Old Testament. And I want, I want to expand on that because, you know, one of the biggest things we see now is overpopulation and it's causing all these issues. But if you, if you look at it, you know, most of the population, like, like we've been saying, are in the big cities. Like, for example, U.S., if you see all the coasts, it's where most of the population is. But all those middle states is like barely any people. So I do want to push back on really... that just by saying I'm in Chicago and he keeps talking about the coast. So let me let me rep for Chicago and just acknowledge it's the third largest city. It's receiving the largest refugee population in the country. It's yeah, it's not coastal. But you have access to the... <laughs> You have access to the lakes, which are connected to the correct, lake. correct. So, but I just I want mean, to make sure let's like, not let's not <laughs> let's not have this coastal bias, New Yorker. Come on now. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is the the edges, the the edges I got of you. the country. I got you. You know, all around the centers. Yeah. Don't have. So, is it is it an issue of overpopulation or just where the population tends to stay within a country, which is usually the outer edges and stuff like that? Is it is it overpopulation or is it just people are flocking to these main mega cities and not spreading out for yeah i think all it's, these reasons i think it's a little bit unique where um yes the city produces many things but also causes of many things um we see that and when people get together we see this in every city uh the the gr- the growth of sin sexuality and morality being probably the most particular one in any major city that has fallen in the bible Sexual immorality is probably the first big proponent of seeing that example of the destruction within a, a nation in the biblical sense. So I think um, cities have their space, but also um, led in an incorrect way could quickly um, be opened up into um, corruption, failure, and then for uh, people to be able to do things. One of the um, things you see in cities in pretty much every major city is the infrastructure is strengthened so much dependency is weakened um and what i mean by that is um you see this in in major cities as you said technological investment coastal areas where trade is high in the highest point you're able to access things you normally wouldn't be able to access to you're able to have less dependency on where your food's coming from especially in today's time where your food's coming from where your water's coming from which which gives you a sense of bigger worth or bigger autonomy of your life than you really have, which promotes a sense of I am my own God because I'm able to access all these things without any help. So I think um, cities, in a sense, escape of dependency of nature many times it causes people to forget who God really is. Yeah, this is a dated stat, but to your point about the food infrastructure, the average plate at a restaurant's traveled fifteen hundred miles to your pl- to your table. That's not good. That's really not good. <laughs> it, that your food is traveling that far and and all that's required to accomplish that. But uh, let let me also just say, if it's true that the city is an incubator for human culture making, if that's true, then then the cultures we create are only going to get magnified in cities, right? So to your point about sin, Abel, that's especially true. If my description of what a city is, if we if we accept that description, then it makes sense that the city would be the kind of centers for the greatest reflections of human sin because it's a reflection mm-hmm. of human culture making. 
yeah so i think it's it's a one of those things that it is risky in our implementation and engagement with cities um especially with today's time where the death rate has lessened which causes a lot more um infrastructure problems because we see this in economics we see this in food uh, right now people are living so much longer and in these cities which is causing bigger problems um and what would you i mean one of the things that um i see is because the church has moved away from massive social gathering gatherings more people are seeking community within the city um we see this in the people of israel with the first uh uh, temple and you know the festivities you know they'll come together specifically once a year out all of israel into one location which would create a, a massive sense of community within that moment do you think city building now is trying to implement social gatherings where the church hasn't done it or played their part do you think it's a f uh, the way we build cities now is a failure of what the church should have been doing when it comes to gathering community and creating community that's an interesting question that I don't know, I don't know is the answer. You know, the historically, the center of many cities, especially, you know, look at some of the cities in Africa, some of the cities in Europe, the, the center of the city would have been the church. Uh, if you've ever traveled to Florence, you would know that that's still the case. The center of Florence yeah, is at Duomo. Always has the cathedral. Yeah, yeah the, so, so historic city building, before, we also have to, we also have to decenter ourselves. We're, we're talking about it, maybe perhaps with a U.S. assumption. Yeah, that, that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, the yeah, the world's biggest cities aren't even in the U.S. The only city in the U.S. that registers on a list of big cities is New York. And now here I'm shading Chicago, which I love so much. But but we'll give credit to the New Yorker in the room. But um, but what I was gonna say was, you know, historic city building up until the you know 1800s where you start having the architectural school of chicago make philosophical shifts literal zoning laws started being created and a philosophy for building cities changed uh, and that was rooted in the architectural schools here in chicago university of chicago playing a big role in that but prior to that the, the center of cities historically had been the church and so that's not to say the church was responsible for the urban plan but that is to say that the urban planners knew that cities were in and of themselves, they, they had a spiritual heartbeat, that there was a kind of soul to the city. In fact, just to nerd out a little bit, the 1909 plan of Chicago, which is one of the first, earliest, most robust city plans in the world, uh, the 1909 plan of Chicago, the builders of that plan, it was two, two men, Daniel Burnham being the principal architect. He was, he was being paid by 32 men in the city of Chicago to write this thing, 32 of the wealthiest men in the city. But uh, Burnham and his compatriots, those 32 folks, uh, they often in the first chapter of the city plan, it sounds really spiritual. They talk about the soul of Chicago. They talk about the, the, the will and the spirit in its move. They talk about the breath moving over the prairies of Illinois. That there's like a really sort of Pentecostal Holy Spirit sort of thing going on. And it's because even then, as the philosophy for building cities was shifting, there was still an understanding that, 
that cities are, if they're incubators of culture making again, that they are spiritual things, that there is a kind of soul at the bottom of it, that it, it has a kind of, if we want to use biblical language, it's a kind of principality. It has its own sort of move and autonomy and sense, right? Um, the, the other thing I, that I wanted to mention in light of that was that some of these builders, take for instance Dan Daniel Burnham, who was responsible, the primary architect responsible for Chicago, he literally thought, this, this he was a Swedenborgian, which is like a weird proto-version of like a, it's not Jehovah's Witness, it's a separate religion, but it has a kind of similar origin story, though quite stranger. We, we'll get into that later, if, we, if you're interested. But, but he was a devout Swedenborgian because of his mom, and in light of that religious belief, he was convinced that if people just followed his plan, that they were building, in a very literal sense, New Jerusalem here in Illinois. That, you know, that in the literal sense, that heaven was going to be in Illinois, in the Midwest prairies, if people just followed the plan. To pause you there real quick. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think city, to, to go to that, how does city planning drive the kingdom? Because obviously we see that in city planning. Um, I mean, we see architectural structures truly detailed in the Bible from Noah's Ark to the tabernacle to Solomon's temple. You see very detailed, this is how it should be built. This is how it should be. Um, I'll pass it to you, the back to you, Anthony. Where do you, why or how does structural design really show God? Because obviously God's interested in that with so much detail. Um, how would you, where would you see structural design being the illumination of God? Well, like you, like you just said, I mean, all throughout the Bible from the beginning to end, there's always when something is being built or something is being alluded to, there's always precise measurements, precise angles, this and, and down to the T. So that's showing us that if, if at all, you know, that's why God is called the, the, the holy architect, the, you know, architecture is an art and it, it comes from God. I don't think it's a, you know, well, nothing. It's a man-made thing, but we like it. We like to attribute it to, you know, men, but, as we see in the Bible, architecture is when when he told them to create the tabernacle, he gave them exact measurements, exact uh, uh, materials, materials, what to use, what kind of wood, what Colors, kind of layman, yeah. what kind of metal. And he said, cho cho pick the, the best artisans. That so obviously as part of God's, uh, you know, mind and his will is for these things. And even in, it, later in, in, in Revelations, we see the New Jerusalem. Has twelve sides, twelve gates. So, you know, it's it's come from God that that artistic spirit that we as humans have comes from God. So there's no way to separate it. Yeah. Uh, before you jump in, Ricky, um, let's um, to dive a little more deeper into that. Do you think there is a architectural design that draws God even that draws God even more, or that's just more of an a spiritual divine that he wanted these measurements. Do you think certain measurements draw God out more than others? Um, either, either or, Ricky, if you want to answer that. Yeah, uh, 
No, I, I don't think that there's like a specific uh, architectural vernacular. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I do not. I do not. In fact, I think uh, Professor Doctora Mayra Rivera, she's Puerto Rican. She teaches at Harvard School of Theology. I think it's School of Theology. But she, either way, she teaches at Harvard. Um, she she has this concept. She's talking about people. So I'm 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 stealing her concept and doing something with it that she doesn't herself. So don't. Whatever mistakes are made are, are here with me, not her. But uh, Mayra Rivera, she talks about this concept of God's more. And what she, when she brings up this phrase, God's more, she's talking about it when it relates to human beings. And, you know, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that we're all made in the image of God. And so you and I, Abel, Anthony, we, we reflect in some particular way God. We bear God's image, right? And she points out that every single unique human bear God's image. So there's always more of God than there than than any single one of us can reflect. And so I think that's also true in the architecture that we try to make, right? There's always more of God's architectural genius to reflect than we are capable in our given architectural vernaculars. That's the, you know, the technical language to say the, the, the styles that are, you know, French boutiques or the, the, all these different styles. Um, I think there's always more of God to reflect than we're ever capable of just coming up with in a single form. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, and, it's, and oh, go ahead, Anthony. To expand on that, it says the universe fits in his palm. So, and he's the architect of the whole universe. So imagine all the ideas and different artistic avenues that we have just on earth. And God has done that through this whole universe that's infinite. And now scientists are saying there's other universes. So imagine, imagine just our universe, all the things he's created and, and, and things we don't even know about. And to think that there's other universes that he created is just amazing and real, real quick if i can just add to what anthony's making saying this is really important when it relates to the uh, the justice element of cities because if we believe like daniel burnham that we are building new jerusalem that our one single plan that this is new jerusalem that can become quite dangerous right because whatever mm. whatever assumptions we make that privilege one thing over another or miss one thing because we simply do not see it or assume that this will be good but it turns out it's really bad whatever mistakes we make if that is the single and only representation of god's will plan and future hope new jerusalem right then that can be really problematic as we try to literally build it out right and so the best part about what i was doing in my research was the 1909 plan of Chicago was over 100 years old. I got to see 100 years of Chicago trying to implement this plan and say, you know, what was wrong? And one of the things that was wrong is that base assumption that the plan itself was, you know, nearly scripture, right? That this, this is the, the blueprint for New Jerusalem, right? But to say there is no single singular human vernacular, architectural vernacular that is the design that will bear out New Jerusalem. That that's impossible for any one man to design. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of those things that um, 
is unique. Um, I do want to bring back something. Before I do, kind of going from macro to micro, obviously the tabernacle had its design plan. Solomon's temple had its design plan. Now churches have implemented their own autonomy in making design for their church. Do you think that's an error where churches should have some sort of like uniform design because you know God's consistently when churches have been built through like God's divine um, instruction have been very driven by his design than our personal preference or the architect's personal preference. Um, bringing it fast forward to now where churches are being built left to right or buying buildings or warehouses or etc. Do you think there's some divine architectural design that we should be following that's a good question and there's you made me think of a lot of things at once so i'll just name i'll just name a couple okay uh number one i think churches should care about both placemaking and architecture more than they do most churches say things like the church is not the temple it's the people you, you hear that sort of phrase a lot in the church and while that's true the church is also the place. <laughs> it is also the design. It is, in fact, true that the space matters. And so, uh, number one, I think churches should care more about placemaking and architecture. And notice that I'm separating those things. Architecture being the literal shape of the building, placemaking being that work of how it connects to those things around it, the people, the systems, the parks, the yeah. community, et cetera, et cetera, right? So those two things, right? Uh, so number one, churches should care more. Number two, there is, as you well pointed out, Abel, a certain kind of church that, that has a kind of, um, I don't know, development mind that is just out here buying buildings and developing them left and right that perhaps uh, need to be more critical in their thinking, right? So one, churches need to think about it more. Two, churches need to think about it more critically. In other words, wondering about the assumptions they're making in, and the systems that they're using to buy buildings, develop things, make these, you know, mega networks of churches, right? That they need to be more critical of what what is being done and why it's being done. My, my favorite example of that, there's a, there's a book uh, that's about the CCDA, uh, Robert Lupton or Richard Lupton. Lupton is the last name, wrote it. Rethinking Ministry to the Urban Poor is the name of the book. Not an interesting title super great book. Uh, he talks about an instance in Atlanta in the 90s in which a church was buying whole blocks. They were buying whole blocks. They were going to knock down all the houses in the block and build a giant church. They did that and then they were buying more blocks because now that they had the big church, they needed to make more space for parking because people were driving in from, you know, all the way across even outside of Atlanta to get to this church. And and it was happening in the same neighborhood that Lupton and others, they were running a Christian nonprofit. A bunch of people from different churches were all working together at this nonprofit. And what they were doing was fixing up churches in this impoverished area, or churches, sorry, fixing up houses in this impoverished area and then selling them at a lower cost to poor families so that they can have housing in these neighborhoods, uh, secured housing. And so what was happening was you had this one mega church knocking down houses to build parking and this other nonprofit that reflected several churches buying houses to try to create housing for people and it was creating a huge conflict so much that the mayor got involved so. do you think um now 
would that be more of a question of should mega churches be implemented in cities or should we go i mean because obviously there's two you know school of oh, not two school of thoughts but i mean there's school of thoughts where like churches should stay in houses and you see francis chan talk about this a lot yeah house church where mega, mega churches being um a problem not a not a solution um and then you see the other where mega churches obviously provide certain things that small churches can't there's services that they can provide that that small churches can't um when it comes to architectural design and even location planning um anthony obviously you're being part of now part of a a, a larger church that takes its space where do you see, where do you see that uh, being being implemented? For me, you know, it's about like I said with the when we were talking about the city and the rural thing. I think there's room for both because you know there's some people that never like big churches will never be in a big church. So what they're not going to have a place to go, you know. So you know, I see it as again the body of Christ, you know, eyes, ears. So if, if you don't think speaking in tongues is biblical, then you have a, you have a, a denomination. You can go and, and still serve God. If you, if you don't believe uh, people should be dancing in the spirit, then you, so, you know, at the end of the day, like Paul says, as long as Christ is preached, you know, that's the important part. So there's a, there's a place for everybody. If you don't like mega churches, you can stay in a small church. If you're tired of small churches, there's a big church. So, and we also have to remember that God's plan was the tabernacle, which moved with the with the people. Today it could be there. Tomorrow it would be there. David was the one that wanted to create this giant temple to, for God. So that speaks to to God's nature that He's always in movement. He's not in one place he'll be here he'll move there so at the end of the day we need both because like you said mega big churches can provide things that small churches can't and vice versa so it's all you know god allows it to exist so at the end of the day there can't be an excuse like oh it's there's only big churches here so i'm not going to go to a church no it's like there's no excuse. <laughs> so just to push back on that, I, I, my only worry with that that concept of there's a church for everyone, I don't think that should be as valued as much as it is. Especially if you see primitive church, like you had church or you didn't have church. Like there wasn't like these sixty options that you had. Like for example, you know we grew up in a a, a street. Me and Ricky, in our, our church, there was literally probably like six churches running at the same time that same street. And I think it's dangerous to allow that to be implemented in the body of Christ too much. Where obviously you do have that, you know, that uh, spectrum of, yes, there is needs to be multiple locations of, 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 of meeting just for distance wise and, and, you know, just logistic, yeah. logistic wise. But I do think, especially, I mean, I've never traveled to the United States, but, um, you know, listen to missionaries and, you know, just listening to different things that's in a very american view where church of my preference is where i need to be and i think if you don't like big church and that's the only thing in there that doesn't matter god's there so like your preference is secondary to who god is so no, what i mean with preference i mean doctrinal or uh theological reasons that, that yeah you may not agree with but 
yeah, it's yeah. not solvistic issues yeah yeah so i uh so that's one thing um i think uh church uh planting is a dangerous thing that we're doing right now within within cities because what many times we end up doing is causing more division and separation of resources instead of implementing and gathering resources so um that's where uh when it comes to like location which i was going to ask is um an error of what churches are doing like for example you have me doing its own thing but it could be opening a, a me church versus assembly god and they're in the same street instead of finding ways to come together to help the city even more so yeah that's one thing because um i think especially here in america we've shifted church to be only a a spiritual um safe haven and not the financial safe haven not the not the mental safe haven not the physical safe haven which yeah. has caused the church not to be the center anymore because it it doesn't provide the same uh, uh avenues like it doesn't provide the holistic redemption of a person that it used to do um so i think well, that's one of the areas and that's where uh, my second question which you talked about or ricky was uh i think uh system engagement or i don't know what you uh what the, re the word you reference when it comes to location uh, planting church planting when especially when it comes within the city because that is more um unique when it comes to countryside you're many times there's not as many churches so it's a little more easy to be the main source of reason there but when it comes to church planting when a city how do you view that when it comes to like i said so many churches opening which is causing separation of resources and of different uh school of thoughts which causes a lot of uh issues within the spreading the gospel in general because there's one person saying yes one person saying no to what's good and right what's right and wrong but also in general when it comes to engagement within the community because many times people are just faithful to their own church and wouldn't engage with you yeah you you all have brought up several good points uh abel you're concerned with the fragmentation that exists right the continual or perpetual fragmentation that happens that's that's valid on a number of levels. Uh, it is in some ways the kind of dark side of Protestantism, right? Like we were we separated over doctrinal issues, and now we continue to separate and into into perpetuity, right? Um, there, there's a lot that I should say. First, let me start by saying I'm not out here to shade megachurches, right? So the example I gave sounds like sounds like a utter slight to the megachurch, and I think Anthony is right that that. The megachurch that thinks critically of its power and influence can do some really important things. So I think of A.R. Bernard. He's a pastor in New York City of a charismatic church. I believe it's charismatic or Pentecostal. Um, we actually interviewed him at World Outspoken, shameless plug. You can look up the feature. We have a podcast interview with him about the Urban Village, which was a project that they're building in, uh, if I remember correctly, it's in Brooklyn. Uh, the project is over $2 billion. It's a super like the amount of money that's attached to it is crazy but to make a long story short uh the neighborhood was becoming impossible for even even middle class people like teachers firemen police officers right these like working class individuals and families it was making it impossible for them to stay now those sorts of service people right so people that serve the city like teachers police officers etc it's really important, we've seen this in reports and data all over the place, it's really important for them to live in the neighborhoods that they serve. Statistically, that's proven to be really important. Well, the the church that A.R. Bernard is pastor of, they were donated several years ago, they were donated a huge plot of land that's worth this $2 billion thing. And what they decided to do as a church that is a mega church with huge influence, 
they decided to develop a neighborhood within a neighborhood. They're calling it the urban village, and they're using it to keep teachers, police officers, firemen, and, and all kinds of other people in Brooklyn, that they, that they don't have to be pushed out in any way. And they're doing it in a way that's seeking the flourishing of the community. That is only possible because of the size of that church, the wealth of its influence, its deep connections over decades in the city of New York, right? Like, that's only possible for a church like that. And so a, a, a mega church that thinks critically of its resources and, and is thinking of ways to really, really impact the, bear witness to the kingdom or bear witness to Jerusalem within a Babylonian framework, right? To do as the people of Israel in exile in Jeremiah 29, to seek shalom within the city that they're in, I think can do really important things. And so, so I think that's an example of a, of a megachurch doing something wonderful. Um, but you don't need to be a megachurch of that size to have placemaking impact. And this is something that you're talking about, Abel. There are all kinds of networks. For instance, I'm a member of something called the Christian Community Development Association, CCDA. Um, these are, this is a network of over 300 different organizations and individuals all across all kinds of cities, suburban and rural environments that are tied together, looking to do what uh, Josh Bennett, he's a, Sean Bennett, sorry, he's a, a Christian missionary out in Portland. He calls it guerrilla urbanism. So what he means is, right, like little attacks into the, into the neighborhood, mm -hmm. Christian attacks that bear witness to the kingdom, right? I don't know about the sort of military metaphor that he's using, but I think he's right. These small tiny acts that you know my favorite uh, i have a friend here in chicago who he was responsible for humble park it's redesigned several decades ago and uh he was asked how do we reduce violence in a neighborhood and his answer was plant flowers and people were super confused like what and his point was make the neighborhood beautiful and people in the neighborhood will feel more responsible for the outdoors of the neighborhood they'll be outside and because people are outside, less shady stuff happens because no one wants to do shady stuff in the light of thousands of people watching, right? So plant flowers, have gardens, and then have people do activities in those gardens, barbecues and parks, et cetera, et cetera. You want to make a park safer? Make it a kind of place that people want to be at because it's beautiful, because it's good, right? So little acts of guerrilla urbanism like that um, go a long way in shaping a place. Yeah, um, I think it's, I mean, obviously we could go more into the logistical part of things. I think one of the biggest issues, especially, you know, our church could really dive into that is um, when we spoke to Carl Anthony was uh, food deserts within cities. And you see that being a big issue, not only food deserts, but you see that, you know, educational deserts, you see, you could, you could say that desert, uh, apply that concept into pretty much any concept. And you see that within cities when it comes to as fragmentation of the people become a reality where uh, the rich go with the rich, the poor go with the poor, just because of pricing, you see this um, sort of desert. Um, but one of the, as I was studying one of the city plannings that is unique, especially within the world, is Barcelona. Uh, when it comes to how it how it planned its city and how it requires certain markets and certain stores to be in radius of each person. Um, and uh and there's they need to have certain amount of things around them within the house to be able to implement that 
Um, and I thought that was really unique in the concept of cities within the cities, as you mentioned, Ricky. Um, and even though as fluky as he is, Kanye West kind of mentioned that as well as, um, as he was talking about his city planning idea of cities within cities, not any of not having zone, deserts of with any kind educationally, food wise and things like that. Um, both of you being both of you, I don't know, Anthony, if you've been to Spain yet yourself, I know Ricky, if you've been, to, uh, both of you've been to Spain. Yeah. How do you, how, how, how was that experience of being part of a city that has implemented that? Um, I'll, I'll lean it to both of you. I've not been to Barcelona, which is the main city that I think you're talking about, Abel. It's the city that has the kind of mini yeah, cities yeah. within the yeah. cities. I've not, I've not seen Barcelona. I'm super compelled by that urban design philosophy, I think it makes a lot of sense. There is a version of it happening in cities in the US. So there's an organization called the Project for Public Spaces, PPS, I don't know if it's .org or .com, the website, but that one of their biggest success stories is actually Detroit, which you and I grew up in. I went and visited Detroit, I think it was last year, with my wife, with Kelly, and downtown Detroit is a whole different kind of thing. It is. It's just astounding yeah, they the what they're doing now up on the second floor. Yeah, yeah, they, they're they're doing some amazing things in downtown, and PPS has been responsible for those revitalization type projects. Um, if if people want to know, because not everyone's going to have the privilege of being able to go visit Barcelona to see a city within a city, but if if they're curious, um, just to give people a resource to look it up, Christians that are looking for like I don't know. Um, just ideas, inspiration for what their church could do. There's something called the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. The Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture from the University of Virginia. Uh, it was actually, they actually ran a project called the Thriving Cities Project, which was actually run by quite a few Christians. They were involved in this thing. And they identified six areas that were critical to the health of a community so a city within a city, we want to use that. And they identified six kind of critical areas or critical um, uh, things, necessities. yeah, necessities that are needed. Um, if you want, Abel, I can list them off for you. Uh, yeah. The six things are here. Uh, truth, goodness, beauty, prosperity, well-ordered justice, and sustainability. I'll say them again. Truth, goodness, beauty, prosperity, well-ordered justice, that's important, well-ordered justice and sustainability. Um, you can look up their Thriving City Project, and they actually have this huge database of key indicators within each one of those. So we could take, you know, goodness, you click on goodness, and then you see all these different projects that have been done in cities all over the U.S. and how that improved the goodness of a particular area in a city. And it's amazing, this project. It's a great data report and it, it goes it spans not just not just city centers, but even surrounding suburbs. I think Abel, you live in a suburb of Charlotte. So, you know, these sort of suburban interconnected spaces, it's pretty wide reaching in its report. And I found it to be I mean, I used it in my classes when I was teaching urban ministry classes to students at Moody. I would have them go to the Thriving Cities Project reports. Pick, pick one of the six critical areas and do a research, a case study of what was working and wasn't working in that area, right? Um, it, it can be a really fun way for pastors and churches to be inspired on what they could or couldn't do. Awesome. Yes, that's, that's uh, really cool. Um, you've, you've been to uh, Barcelona, Anthony, you said, right? 
Yeah. <clears throat> and how was that experience, kind of actually seeing that concept in person? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't paying attention to that. But <laughs> for me, it's more about a cultural spirit. As as Ricky knows, going being in Europe, it's complete. You know, we get stuck in the United States and how everything here is go, go, go. Uh, throwaway society. We just buy something new. But in almost all other countries, it's not. It's not like that. It's like... Especially, you know, in in the Caribbean, South America, Europe. It's not like, you know, here we, we go to a big supermarket, we buy a bunch of groceries, stack the fridge, and it sits there for weeks, and we use it as... In other countries, it's like, I'll walk to the, I'll walk to the butcher shop, I'll get my meat for the next one or two days, I get what I need for, for these next two or three days. And so there's, there's this, like, it's just a different spirit as we were talking about earlier, like cities have the spirit. It's just, and that's what we see. We see some of that up North in Chicago and New York is the same thing. It's like people are walking, people are going here and here. You go to the bodega, you go to the corner store versus more down South is most of the stuff is further away. You got to drive out. So it's, it's more of a spirit of, of connectivity. Like, yeah, exactly. That it's not like, Oh, I just want to hoard all these things and, if it goes bad, I just throw it out and buy a new one. It's it's more meticulous, more slow pace. One of the ways that we can slow people down, to, to Anthony's point, is since the late 1800s, again, the school of Chicago, they, they really messed us up, uh, to put it nicely. Uh, they assumed the kind of tabletop building for cities. So imagine a flat table. We're going to build up on a flat table. The table itself is not is not relevant or important. It's all about how we build up from it, right? That's the sort of assumption. Whereas in cities in the rest of the world, not everywhere, but in, in healthy cityscapes, they don't think of it in terms of tabletop building up, but they think of it as clay and carving in. So what that creates is what people call a healthy enclosure. So, you know, in a house, you feel nice and safe, because you're in four walls or five walls, whatever, however it works, right? But you're enclosed. You feel like you have comfortable in the space and you have rooms and you have hallways. Well, this other clay way of thinking of cities, right, where you carve in, you carve in city plazas, which you see in cities like Florence has all mm-hmm. these little plazas that are like stop points. Yeah. And then you have mm-hmm. the hallways. You think of it like rooms in a house, right? The plaza is a room. The street is a hallway to the next plaza or next little open yeah. area. That kind of enclosure is really healthy for the human. It feels comfortable. It feels natural. And cities in Chicago have not, or cities since the school of Chicago, rather, have not really been built that way, um, especially not in the U.S. This sort of tabletop, they'll have spaces that feel super open and that doesn't feel super safe to anybody and then they have spaces that are overwhelmingly closed because you have these huge skyscrapers that also doesn't feel safe to the human mind right so thinking tabletop versus carving into clay is one of those practical ways in which cities have been different yeah it's it's uh it's something where the church has lost its, its voice in and it's um, important, and, and I think that's where, uh, as in, we talked about, you know, finding, picking the locations, not just about great pricing, but about the people that you're going to be around, the demographic, what is the need, how, you, what you're going to provide, what network can you create. Um, so I think um, it's important 
for the church, even for ourselves and where we live and what we choose to live in is super important. Um, and I think, uh, well, my last point on this is looking into the future as we continue to grow in population, where is that balance of urbanizing the world into respecting the land? Um, as we know, cities become concrete jungles, which doesn't allow the land to flourish and which causes the land to die. Um, where do you long term, how should the church in a perfect world, the church has its voice? Where is that balance of providing urbanizing and moving this, the world forward in culture making, but also respecting the land and, the, uh, and what it is? Um, I, I'll go with you, Anthony, first. Well, we have to remember God is Alpha and Omega. So how he starts things is how he ends it, right? He started with a perfect man. He wants to end with a perfect man. We're going to be brought into perfection and the end. So it's not a coincidence that he started in a garden with men tending to nature and overseeing nature. That's what we were called to do is to govern the earth. So it goes against our nature when we do things that harm the earth and and stymie its its growth and its expansion. So, you know, not to bash city planners and all these people, but that's why I, I like the movement that's been generating over the last few years, making it greener and, and implementing these things that, although it's, you know, it's concrete, but there's ways that they started implementing green walls and, and rooftop gardens and stuff like that. So we have to remember that we were called to, to, to manage and protect the earth and cultivate it, not destroy it. So, yeah. Uh, Ricky, what do you, where, where's your views on that long longevity of, of, of earth uh, care? Yeah. The ecological element is really important. There was a preacher that came into Moody once. This is in the sixties. This is way before I was at Moody. But he came into Moody once and he read a newspaper where another pastor had been interviewed uh, because his church was leaving the city of Chicago. They were leaving the city and they were moving out to a rural space. And that pastor said, <laughs> that pastor said, when David moved into the city, he sinned and took Bathsheba. When the people of Israel moved into the city, they lost their way and had to be exiled. And essentially the pastor was saying, cities are evil, gardens are good, so we need to move. And I want us to be really careful not to suggest that the city is the sort of evil man-made creation that needs to be escaped and, and remind uh, those listening to us, right, that there are in scripture two pictures. There's the Babylonian, or if we want to use the, the church father, St. Augustine, right, the city of man and the city of God, right? Augustine mm. talked that way. Uh, it was his sort of framework. Uh, the city of man is always inevitably destructive to everything, to humans as individuals, to society, to the natural world, right? Uh, the garden city, on the other hand, the city that has echoes of the garden in within it and a th as a thriving element of it, the garden city that is Jerusalem, is quite the contrary. It's something that thrives in tandem with nature, human culture and nature, together reflecting God's beautiful and wonderful design. I think, I think that the city is what God intended for us to make. That when God told Adam and Eve, 
to cultivate the ground, that what God had intended for them was that the eventual construction of Jerusalem, right? That that's the long-term plan of God. But of course, we've always failed in creating Babylons instead. Um, to answer the question ecologically and to answer your, your sort of bigger question or concern, Abel, where you're saying, yo, Christians, the church has lost its voice. Uh, maybe I want to say we need to think of it we need to remember the story of Elijah in First Kings, right? Elijah goes in, onto the mountain in Horeb and God says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm the only prophet, right? He's like, I'm the only one who hasn't turned to Baal. And God says, essentially God says, what are you talking about? I got yeah, I got, it, not even 7,000, right? Like, 7, yeah, it, God says, there are a whole bunch of people that haven't turned. And I just want to point out, mm -hmm. right? Like, David Doig, Sean Benich, the CCDA, which I already told you about, you know, 300 organizations and churches. There are so many Christians. There's a podcast, if people are curious, there's a podcast called The Embedded Church that is all about how churches are planting themselves to placemake in rural, suburban, and urban environments, and all three. So there are thousands of Christians who have realized over many years, and they're going way back with this, that have realized we need to care about place and design and architecture and city planning and have involved themselves in some really beautiful and powerful ways. We just don't hear about it all the time. And things like the Embedded Podcast, things like the CCDA are spaces where people can hear those testimonies. And so just as a reminder, there are Christians that have cared about even like food deserts or the green space in cities, right? Like, David Doy was a friend I mentioned earlier who said, let's plant more gardens. Let's make sure there's more green space. And so that is that is happening. Yeah. Um, to wrap up this conversation, we've mentioned New Jerusalem quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And both of you have mentioned New Jerusalem kind of a different way. Where Anthony, you've mentioned it more in a spiritual location. Where Ricky, you've mentioned it more in a physical location. Um, can you uh, both expound on that? Because obviously there's, you know, various two that's a very school of thought like new jerusalem being a spiritual metaphor and a spiritual uh, uh symbol um as you would say archetype of what what the end is going to be where others look at it as a true well as a tim keller would say a true redemption of the world where it's a redemption not only of a spiritual sense but physical mentally spiritually like we're truly being redeemed and reborn into this physical world like this is going to be where we're at so I think I'll go with you first because you mentioned that initially when we first started talking about this and I kind of want to save this towards the end of this part. How do you view that uh, as in, is it truly spiritual? Um, and I guess we could give an example, uh, a general explanation. Revelation talks about this, a redeeming of the, of the world and talks about New Jerusalem as basically, in Galatians it talks about Jesus was a true Adam, like it started with Adam falling and Jesus' implementation in Galatians that talks about this is the same concept of Revelation. Revelation talks about where New Jerusalem was supposed to be the right thing, but messed up and fall. And this New Jerusalem is coming to re basically be the ultimate uh, a redemption of this world. So, Anthony, I'll go with you first. Since you mentioned the spiritual side of things, how do you view that that uh, that story? Is it just a spiritual? Is it is there a sense of a physical a physical redemption? How would you view that? Well, yeah, there is a physical, but it's not the new Jerusalem. The physical part comes at the end where it says there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. The new earth is the physical 
earth that would be free of sin. Like I said before, <clears throat> how God starts everything is how, he, how he's going to end it. He started with a physical man on earth, physical humankind on earth. That's how he's going to end. If he didn't want man to be on earth, he would have never put us here in the first place. We would have stayed in. We come from him. We would have stayed in him. But he wants a physical representation of his spiritual kingdom. He wants a physical re representation. That's why in the end, it goes full circle. And it says new, he new heaven and new earth. So we're going to end up how he originally start, wanted it to be. What the new Jerusalem is, we got to remember, when John was writing Revelations, he asked the angel, show me, show me the bride. And then after he says, show me the bride, the church is the bride. Then the angel says, out of, then the new Jerusalem comes out. So John says, show me the bride. Then he responds, new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. So the new Jerusalem that's speaking about there is the bride. He's answering him by saying, look, the bride is the city. That's why it has 12 walls, 12 gates. 12 is the number of revelation and, and, prof and prophetic. That's not talking about a literal city that has 12 walls. So the, the, the issue that I see is that we've confused the new Jerusalem and the new earth. Just because you think the new Jerusalem is a spiritual thing doesn't mean that there's not going to be a new earth where it says at the end. The new earth is part of it. But the new Jerusalem that it's talking about there is the bride. That's why it says the new Jerusalem came out of heaven. Heaven doesn't come out of heaven because heaven is heaven. The new Jerusalem is the bride that's coming down with with the groom. So, yeah, that's what I, that's my interpretation. No, yeah. Um, I mean, it's I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's uh, we'll never have the right answer in that sense of things where um as revelations, one of the inter one of the things about revelations is John was clearly seeing things that were beyond his world. Um, like he saw the elapsement of time in reality. Like he saw truly the end of time. Which I mean, that, that's that's the issue with that book trying to trying to squeeze it into a timeline because he's seeing spiritual things. The spirit world is not on a timeline. That's yeah. That's so, why he's that's why he saw things that haven't that haven't happened but then he he saw things that already happened and it's like i always i always bring back that's why interstellar uh, interstellar is my favorite movie because of that where like it goes into that scene with tesseract where it's like he's seeing time he's part of time but not really affected by time mm -hmm. um so i think that's one of like for example when we talk try to like say oh this sign is 9-11 or this sign is this like it's hard to say that because he's describing things in why we say words always fail God in a sense where we can never truly describe what he's who he really is because words will never live up to who God is exactly so I he's think beyond, John yeah. is the hardest book to interpret because he's he's seeing things like like truly like the whole scope of the world from beginning to end so that's really hard but um uh, all that to blabber to pass it to Ricky what do you, what is your uh kind of interpretation no there. i love the interstellar theology <laughs> biblical studies this is we're, we're doing a lot any chance it gets yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're doing a lot here at the at the end of a podcast people are gonna be like oh my god um no uh i'll say this i i agree that the end of scripture is material it's not it's not 
it's not spiritual for us, right? That it, there is a material reality that we have hope for in the end. Um, I, I appreciate Anthony's point that, that we are looking ahead to a new heaven and new earth. My favorite thing to tell students at Moody that, that oh, it never failed, it broke their brains, was to point out that, hey, we're not escaping from earth to heaven. That is not that is not the story of the Bible, that we're escaping this. In fact, since we're talking about city planning, in the 60s, a bunch of churches, the roofs of the churches on the inside when you were worshiping, if you looked at, up at them, they looked like little boats. Because in the 60s, a lot of the theology of these churches was we're escaping from earth like Noah's Ark mm -hmm. into heaven. So we they would literally leave the city. This was back in that movement of leaving the city. And they built churches that looked like arks because we're leaving wow. this evil city and going to heaven. And this church is our little boat that will carry us. So speaking of architecture and everything else, I don't believe that's correct. I think that's a bad mm -hmm. that's a bad reading of what the Bible promises. And to Anthony's point, there is a new heaven as much as there is a new earth, because in that exactly. spiritual reality, there's plenty of fallenness in terms of fallen angels and everything else. But not to get into a big eschatology Bible study, I think a little differently than Anthony. I do, as Abel, Abel you rightly pointed out, I do think that the scripture is pointing to a kind of urbanized reality. Again, not, not like anything we have seen other than in glimpses, in small pockets in the cities that we presently lived in. Um, I, I know for me, I, I, I say this um, as personal experience, perhaps others have had it. There have been moments where I'm walking around, even in my city in Chicago, where, you know, it happened to me most recently, I was getting uh, Italian ice and there was a line of people. We were at this, you know, a whole literal hole in a wall waiting in line for a tiny girls blowing bubbles city you know little girls blowing bubbles there's a little dog walking around everyone's laughing and i'm thinking yo this is a glimpse a small glimpse i for a moment i felt like i was in heaven right like i felt like this is it and i think those sorts of moments where we have these sort of transcendent sort of like this is what god intends is what that new jerusalem will always be right that it'll be a part of this new earth that we that we experience now what that looks like to your point table is beyond me as it was beyond john uh, the other thing you said we'll never know well i sure hope i'll know i just will know way at the end i sure hope that i i arrive in jesus christ to say thank you lord for we for giving later. me space here right so but we'll know yeah, <laughs> yeah. um Shifting gears real quick, I kind of want to wrap up on this point because I think it's really important, especially within cities, especially in the U.S. Um, obviously, um, all three of us were um, growing up in American culture, so this is very a vivid point, is a compounding effect of misimplementations within cities in particularly. Um, as you mentioned, Chicago, which is probably the most famous, well-known when it comes to a mortgage red zoning. Um uh, Chicago is one of the biggest cities that implemented that uh, red zoning, uh, which people don't know it, what it means is basically certain people weren't allowed um, to get mortgages in certain areas due to the fact of the demographic and income and black people. Racism. Yeah, black people. <laughs> yeah. Well, was it, it wasn't just black people. It was color, color, Hispanic, color. Hispanic people. That's right. Non-whites. 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 That's right. 
um, so um, red zoning became a big. That's why you see HUD, and HUD is a response to that. Mm -hmm. Which people don't know what HUD is. When you buy a house, they ask you questions to make sure that there is a diversity within home buying within your community. Mm -hmm. um, most banks are required. I mean, pretty much every bank is required to do that. And financial institution when you buy a home. Not to get into details on that logistical part of things, but. Red zoning is a big issue, um, compounding effect of red zoning. So um, as you see, home, uh, even if Florida has a big issue on this now as well. And you're going to see there are movements of this where major financial companies, um, major uh, massive companies are outbidding so many homeowners and outbidding so drastically where renting is becoming your primary source of option of rent, of, and which which then these companies in in sense have control of of pricing, have control of who lives there because they can outprice people, outprice communities, and outprice certain um, certain uh, uh, workers. So you even see this in a, a modern day of red zoning where you're having overpriced um, people overbuying houses, which is causing more people to rent. So, long story short, um, how should the church? Um, the reason why I bring this up is because California right now currently is in process. Um, to if I'm pronouncing this word re reparations, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, basically, um, if people aren't aware right now, um, they are looking into. They recommended it's still in voting status. Recommended reparations for Black people to be paid back. Uh, basically, this long compounding effect of money lost. All these laws. All these laws that they have lost. Mm -hmm. um, um, before I pass it to you, I mean, it's a unique thing because especially in a financial spot, how do you measure exactly how much they lost? Because just because you have something doesn't mean you actually be successful in it. And that's the only worry on that side of things. You could have had land, you could have lost it because you didn't pay it right. Um, long story short, how should the church respond to reparations in a physical sense, logistically? How should we look at it in a spiritual sense, how we should look at it, um, and in a mental sense? I, I'll, we'll stick to those three uh, scopes, at least. Yeah, I can jump in if you want me to go first on that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, there are some friends that I have. I can send you uh, the book. I don't remember it now, or if you give me a moment, I'll look it up later. But there are some friends who've written a book on reparations. Uh, they're friends in, in Rome, Roman similar circles. Uh, Essentially, I think that the idea of reparations is really compelling, though I have no idea how to pull it off. Um, there, There is a book that I'm reading now called Decolonizing Diasporas, where she talks about reparations of the imagination. It's in other words, in other words, she's saying, like, we need to at least start trying to imagine that a world otherwise is possible, that we don't have to continue to repeat these patterns uh, over and over, these cycles over and over. Um I think one way that the church can be involved in these conversations, I, I think the church needs to be involved in this at, at every level, at the at the highest, most public level, right? And that, that's where we like publicly lobby for things like reparations, like a slowdown in, in TIF funds, a slowdown in gentrification process, a resistance to developers who are buying whole sections of communities to Abel's point, like, right? That's the big sort of like, that's what gets in the news. That's what's like, you know, on the websites, on the blogosphere, right? But then there's, you know, a level under that, churches with influence, like A.R. Bernard's church, which I mentioned earlier, that $2 billion urban village project is a way of protecting families and giving space and housing, right? I mentioned Lupton earlier, who was doing that in Atlanta in the 90s. That's, you know, one layer down from that. And then another layer down from that, right, is getting involved in the social systems in your city. And so, 
you know, we can go all the way down to the individual family, but should the church, should the church be this, Abel, your question is a lot like that reporter. Is there a moral responsibility to rebuild parts of the city that red zoning, uh, redlining had a hand in helping destroy? I think the answer to that, if we really are to reflect God's kingdom by caring for those that are the least of these, I think the answer to that has to be yes. Many Christians I've seen have resisted saying yes to that, in part because they go, well, it's impossible. How do we recoup what was lost? And to that, I think we need to be more imaginative. We need to, we need to start thinking with the creative brain of our God, right? <laughs> the, the thinking with the capacities and trusting that the spirit can guide and illuminate possibilities that we have not yet seen. Uh, and some Christians, I think, have given us testimony that that is possible. So that's my long-winded answer. I don't know the specifics, but I know that there are examples of possible ways that the church can be involved in righting decades of wrongs. Yeah. Um, my, so I was listening, I was looking it up to just make sure I got it. Michael Sandel, um, he was doing a speech about affirmative action at Harvard. And uh, one of the things as he was debating it was um, affirmative action, though beautiful in a sense of what it does, punishes people that had no fault of their own for past uh, past issues where we're uh, we're punished for some punishing someone for something they have an uncontrol of being white um they had no control of being white being born white so why should they be punished and not be admitted to a school due to just their color so um obviously one of the big big responses to reparation is diversity including diversity making rules where it favors the people that were unfavored and oppressed for so long to have them catch up to the people. But one of the biggest response, and this is where my worry is, we're punishing people that had no, that have no control over how they were born or had nothing to do with the past, um, past oppressions. So Anthony, how would you, how would you respond to that? Like, how do we not overcorrect and hurt the people that are innocent in their time just for, just for being white, they're punished. What I'm struggling with is understanding what do you mean by punished? So like, for example, it's not, it's not like they're taking white people's money and giving it to. Well, California is going to be paid by tax money. So that one's, that one would be a very unique situation because technically they're all paying for it, but um, let's go within an emissions aspect because that would be um, something we could like kind of focus on, which is a simplex version to a more complex idea. But affirmative action is um, basically, um, Ricky, you were in a mission, so you could even talk about it a little bit more, but the idea of, of favoring a certain race or uh, minorities uh, to be able to diversify the community or just to catch up. Um, uh, so like Harvard has two programs like this. They have legacy admission as well. So basically, if your parents became, were in Harvard, it also gives you a higher chance to get in. But what affirmative action would do is if a white person is given an example, has grid grades, you know, the requirements, but there's another a Hispanic, let's just say, has the same requirements. They will lean towards that person due to the fact of their race. So race has a a, a choice where, I guess, uh, uh, a reason why they brought this up in Harvard is because someone sued uh, Ivy, uh, Ivy League school. I forgot which one it was because they said, why am I being punished for being white? Like, I have no control over that. I wasn't part of racism. My, you know. Yeah, I get you. So, <clears throat> the issue is that. The issue is that regardless of how we go about it, it's going to be messy. So we have to 
we have to face the fact that it's going to be mess regardless because if you don't hurt these guys' feelings, these guys' feelings are going to be hurt. So that's the, the hardest pill to swallow is to understand that we can't – not everybody's going to be happy. So – but because, for example, let's say – let's use hardware for an example. How How can you make it? all even across the board. So then let's go to let's go to statistics. We have 100 students, so we have to make sure that we have a even amount percentage of every of every race. Let's say there's because there's commonly known as five races, which is black, white, uh Asian Pacific, uh Pacific yeah. Islander and then the other one. So let's say for sake of argument, let's say the five. So then it'll have to be 20, 20, 20, 20. So then if, you know, if the 20, the quote of 20% of white people is fulfilled, then obviously all the white people that are trying to get in are going to be like, okay, sorry, we have to. F- so my point is that it's going to be messed regardless, but there has to be a, a baseline of precedent to, to make it happen. Cause if not, it's just never going to happen. So there has to be a way to make it, even quote unquote fair all around and that's just the way it has to be because that's the only way that's the only way you can do it there's no other way but splitting it even so that the hundred percent is evenly split among the yeah that's the only way to do it so um in this conversation one of the things they said about doing something like that is you're not getting the best people in the in in the right places that if you give a Hispanic or a black person or Pacific Island, whatever race, it doesn't matter. You're giving them because of their race, not because of their qualification. You end up not getting long-term the best leaders, the best innovators, because you're putting people that are really not skilled enough to make it there, get there because of just something beyond what their performance or grades are. But then one of his response was, and I'll let you go, Ricky, was maybe their grades and performance aren't there because they weren't able to access the same opportunities that the white person or another person had. So because of that, they had a compounding effect that their grades and performance never reached the potential. But how do you measure potential? Then that becomes a problem as well because yeah, you might grades just, aren't the end all be all. Yeah. yeah, you might think they have potential, but they end up might not having it. So uh, go back to you, Ricky, since you were in missions, how do you, so let's just focus on that sentence as a microcosm of the bigger issue. How would you, what, how do you view that? Yeah. Admissions is a, is a particularly uh, flash in the pan part of this because it's literally about seats, right? There's a number of seats, fill the seats. Uh, I don't know that cities or even reparations function the same way, but I hear you that it's a microcosm, but it's just a little different. I mean, to, to your point, this haunted me at Moody because when we were working in admissions at Moody, it helped if you had gone on a mission trip, that helped your chances of getting to Moody because it showed your sort of missionary zeal. If you had if you had done some kind of ministry internship, that helped in terms of your application at Moody. Except I looked at my peers in admissions one day and I said, you kind of have to go to a mega church for some of these things to even be possible. Some of our tiny little Pentecostal churches don't have mission trips. and They do now. Mm-hmm. Some of these churches of now have started to build some of those things. But back when we were a youth group, we were lucky if we had anything other than youth service on Friday night, right? Like that was 
essentially it. And so, um, yeah, so I said to say admissions is is especially dicey because it's about seats in a classroom. Um, I, I don't know that I have a good answer on how to fix it in terms of admissions to Anthony's point whatever model we choose is going to be messy but it sends a specific practical answer i'll give a theological one and people can critique me for not giving a practical one later i don't really care but but since we're talking about seats at a table it makes me think of luke 14 right jesus is invited to the house of the leader of the pharisees a bunch of the Pharisees are eyeing the seat right right of the master. They're all trying to jockey for that seat, right? And they're trying to make their way. Jesus looks around the room and goes, what are y'all doing? Take the seat of the servant and trust the master to put you in that seat. Now, what I love about that story is, number one, Jesus is not saying the seat right next to the master isn't important anymore. Like, no, he, he, he that seat stays important, right? Like, But he's saying mm-hmm. seat in the seat of the servants and let the master choose to bring you up in other words right like trust the master's judgment of your honor right um that your honor your prestige your status is in the hands of the master but then the next part of that story is equally interesting because jesus says but not this master not this pharisee right because then he goes after the pharisee and says why you invite your friends and everyone else who will then owe you a favor right so you're inviting so as to build some kind of debt economy not that, right? That's that's not the kind of master that we want. And then he, of course, ends with this parable where he, he you know, the, the master of the ceremony, in this case is Jesus, he invites everyone and everyone says, well, I got this responsibility and I got this farm and I got this and that, et cetera, et cetera. The end of that parable, Jesus says, go invite those poor people that are out on the streets. And the servant says, well, they're already here. And I think sends a practical answer. The logic of the kingdom is that the poor and the underprivileged are already prioritized and at the master's table. All the ones of us complaining about our seats and our privilege and whether or not we get in and whether... We're the ones who are always making excuses about our farms and our marriage and our this and our that. The poor are the ones that Jesus already made room room for. And he's saying, there's more room in addition to them. We have to figure out how to live by that logic, the logic that privileges the most marginalized first, trusting that there really is space at the table for the rest of us. Exactly how that works in practical things like admissions, which is so volatile, I have no idea. So this is how I, I kind of divided in a few points. Um, one, I think uh, the early church had it right in a sense where I think I could be judged I and mean, you could judge me on this point as well. They had a very socialistic concept. And if you would modernize it into the most modern the, uh, uh, financial concept, it is very socialist. They sold everything to make sure everything was, was in need. And th- many people look at it as uh their love for each other drove that one their care to make sure everyone had their with their need but i think as ricky said in that parable i think which is really important is our faith that the our leaders and god is going to do do us right as well do do right by us 
Um, the biggest issue is that we have corrupt leaders that don't have God in the center, which causes errors in implementations of systems, which is the, the biggest thing. No matter what way you do it, if you do equal, there's going to be some corrupt way to do it if you do it that. So I think us letting go everything and getting what we need it, and and not, not look at it by measurement. This person might get more, I might get less, but trusting that the Lord has given us what we need and what we deserve um in that sense of things i think is really important i think also what's really important is um that diversity doesn't equal always equal equality or um so i think that's really important in a sense of let's not force our hands to do certain things to feed into a response but allow equality to be truly implemented in that sense of things <clears throat> and i think through that we're able to really start implementing systems that make sense um the most difficult thing especially here is our independent success is a driving factor of what we see as successful instead of looking at the whole body being successful um and uh, and we could look at even not only within our time but generationally and i think now having a kid i see that even more is that like i'm not only building for me not for my just community here but for my next generation, I might not be able to finish the work, but my next generation, my, the next generation might be able to finish the work. And we're truly a living body of like finishing a work that, like you said, Ricky, there was people trying to do this concept for years and we might be able to finally have the funding to do it now. But they were opening those doors, opening those, opening those doors to, for us to be able to finally get to that point. So I think that is in itself. And when we view it that way, We'll have peace, like you said, uh, Anthony, is going to be messy to fix a solution. But similar when the, the apostles got flogged and they rejoiced in sacrificing, I think when we have that mindset, we will rejoice in sacrificing, maybe not being able to have the opportunity to ourselves get educated, but to solve the bigger issue of, of, of the oppressed. And I think those um, when we when we have that mindset, our giving becomes much more, our sacrificing becomes more willing. And our love for our for others and the future generation becomes much more uh, yeah. uh, accepting. Um, so I think that's that's where yes and amen it is. I mean yes and amen. Uh, it's it's tough because we live in an American democracy which has two parties, which ends up you having to choose one or the other and solutions, and it's much more messy because we're not the voice of reason anymore and you heard, you heard it here folks circles you heard it here first everybody abel is a socialist marxist out here <laughs> that's right <laughs> um so it's, it's really tough here but um the biggest thing I, I would say for the listeners wherever you're located at make sure you have relationships with create us make sure you're doing your part in creating a system talk to your neighbors if it's a neighbor that's five acres away or if it's a neighbor that's right above you or right next to you in your apartment, I think we're called to create that community no matter if it's two people because it's you're in a, in a countryside or if it's 20 people in your apartment building. I think called us, uh, God's called us for, for that. And I think if you're, if you're leaders within the church, I think it's our time to re-recognize the importance of architecture, placement, and um, our response to how we are in the city. Uh, Ricky. Uh, yeah, may I add, just because you brought up the neighbor piece, uh, just because you brought up red zoning, some of us need to expand what we mean by neighbor because some of our neighborhoods are still the 
byproducts of this red zoning. So our neighbors are still wealthy, well-to-do, you know, they're fine. When, when, you know, in scripture, our neighbor is always that person on the other side of that boundary, right? The person who, who is not of the same status as us, right? Like, you know, the parable of who is our neighbor, the good Samaritan, right? What's the person, the person who's beat to death, has nothing, has no, you know, the, the person is on the other side of whatever that is. So our neighbor needs to go beyond because of, because of the just spe- that's specific to the U.S. Because of the fact that some of our neighborhoods still have this history and are the legacy of these evil practices, we might need to look to the neighborhood next door. We might need to look, you know, just just because again that that is the neighbor that the Lord might be calling us to. The neighborhood over, not the door. Over. Not the door. Yeah, for some of our not maybe not all of us, but for yeah. some of us that might be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, again, we encourage you guys uh, to comment, share, send questions. Um, we'll love to be able to continue to engage with uh, with the community to make sure. Um, again, we don't have all the answers, but together, if we unite, we'll be able to understand the Lord more and be illuminated to God's love towards us. So thank you guys for listening, and catch you on the, on the next one.